Again, it is, uh, it's good to have you here. I'm uh, excited about our text this morning. We're going to be in the book of Acts. And uh, we've been going through this series, and we're going to jump back into that again uh, here this morning. But before we do that, what we want to do is just uh, open it up again for uh, us to hear stories of maybe how God moved this last week. So, if you were here last week, we tried a little experiment. We'd never done it before. Um, our idea was to actually try to live out what the text is communicating. And so, uh, we've done this many times before where we've like taught on prayer, but instead of just teaching on it, let's actually put it into practice. And so, about seven minutes into the service, we taught and then we just opened it up and the whole rest of the service became a prayer room. And we just moved from station to station as a community and engaged in prayer and we had elders laying on hands and anointing with oil. And I mean, it was just times where we can actually live out what the text is saying. And so this last week, we uh, did another experiment like that, and we talked about in Acts this idea that uh, the believers, that the Christians, the community, the church, had all things in common. So we asked, what does it look like to have all things in common? We did a quick little teaching on it, and then we said, okay, let's have all things in common. And one after another, people stood up and shared needs. I have a need for this, or I know somebody who could really use this. And then we tried as a community right there in that time to begin to meet those needs, whether they were prayer needs, emotional needs, financial needs. Um, So what we want to do this morning is just kind of open it up and get feedback of what happened during this last week. How have you seen God meet some of those needs? I think someone in the back, Allison has a uh, mic, and uh, she'll jog around. So, who wants to start us off? Okay, so if you were here in first service last week, then you uh, heard me talk about my mom who got a promotion and is kind of struggling, well, was kind of struggling (laughs) over this pack week. She's a lot better. Someone gave us $20 to go out and buy her flowers at the end of the service. Uh, We cleaned the entire house, and she got home, and she cried because she was so happy. So, thank you. Uh, Yeah. It's awesome. Someone else, how have you seen God move this week through your small group, through needs being met? Okay, we got three right here in a row. She's coming. So um, I asked um, for some support in getting um, GU students up to our home for a Bible study, and um, thank you. I have drivers for that, so that was great. And then the second part of my um, prayer was for my daughter, Emily, who's um, over in the Boston area and um, as a freshman. And, uh, and so just some support for her in finding a faith community and everything. And it was pretty awesome. Um, gal after I shared um, Maddie who I met um, she was a couple rows in front of us last week during the first service her best friend goes to Boston University and um, has contacted Emily so that was pretty exciting and so that's in the works so um, anyway I was just pretty blown away very overwhelmed um, by that support thanks for sharing My name's Patrick, and my wife, Lisa, is battling 
uh, lung cancer. And uh, you saw a picture of our dog up there, Daphne. As Russ says, she has a crap load of energy. <laughs> so uh, we got uh, overwhelmed with dog walkers. And uh, somebody in our small group took Daphne out for a walk that very day. So that was awesome. Very cool. Thanks, Pastor. I also um, just want to say in response to worship today that um, I was just so impacted by knowing that so many people are praying and fighting on my behalf because at times when you're in a um, battle that Pat and I are, um, you're, you can have some very, very dark moments and feel very, very alone, even though you know you're not. And so if you ever, like, my name's Lisa, <laughs> and if you ever forget, like, oh, I was supposed to be praying for Lisa, and then I come to your mind, like, pray for me, <laughs> because it could be I'm in one of those really black, dark moments mm -hmm. where I can't pray for myself or I don't have the faith, but you have the faith. Um, for me at that moment. So I just wanted to respond to that worship that we're all in this together. So. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Hello. Uh, if you were here 9 o'clock uh, last week, you um, would have heard me. I spoke about um, I've God had been leading me to deal with a lot of stuff from my past. And through this past week, a lot of it has magically fixed itself um, f from past relationships that had been haunting me for years mm. to just um, wellness of mind. And I do think that is from the prayer and the outpouring that I received right after service and then throughout the week. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you. <clears throat> we have time for maybe one more. So um, I shared in second service that um, for an organization I work for, 4-H, we needed volunteers for our science, technology, engineering, and math programs. And then after the service, a couple of Whitworth students who are um, in STEM programs said that they'd be willing to help volunteer. And then on Thursday, um, a school in Deer Park reached out to us saying, we really need people to come help us. So now we have volunteers for that, and that's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm sure we could go on for a while uh, sharing. I know personally I received a bunch of different emails and just things like saying, hey, if you need anybody to do this, or hey, if there's this kind of need, let me know. And uh, it's just, it's amazing to see how God works and moves among a body of people that actually love and care for one another. This morning, uh, as I said, we are in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, you can. What I want to do this morning is uh, kind of get us thinking about some things before we really look specifically at the text. Because, see, I think a lot of times in life what we do is we create frameworks in our mind, and we allow those frameworks to color the way we see life. Okay? 
So let me give you an example. This was a little uh, post on Facebook the other day. Uh, it says, long day. Jesus makes things so hard on me. Someone named Beth says, doesn't he? But it's for the best. Just keep him in your heart and keep praying, girl. It will get better. <laughs> Jesus works in mysterious ways. A little later, this was posted. Beth, Jesus is my 14-year-old son. He was suspended from school for punching a janitor again. <laughs> yes. We immediately read something, and we have a framework. And so we begin to talk through that frame or that lens rather than understanding the whole picture. We do this a lot in life. Let me give you a little quiz. Maybe you can uh, try this quiz. It goes like this. A giant inverted steel pyramid is perfectly balanced on its point. At any movement... Any movement of the period, pyramid will cause it to topple. Underneath the pyramid is a $100 bill. How do you remove the bill without disturbing the pyramid? If you need help on it, talk to your neighbor. I'll give you about 30 seconds to figure it out. Now, when we, we hear this argument, or we have, hear this problem, a lot of times we are looking at it through a particular lens, a framework again. So I've kind of given you a little bit of the idea behind it. And so we get stuck in these mental boundaries. We create these boxes in which we have to work. We frame things. We think it makes it easier for us. And so when it comes to this answer, and like some of you are going, well, like I've seen people pull tablecloths off real fast. So maybe if you pull it really quick, that'll help. Or maybe you have all these different ideas. But uh, here's what I believe uh, the answer is to this little problem, it is you burn the bill. You light it on fire, and then it's completely removed. Now, that doesn't necessarily come into our mind, and perhaps maybe someone in here answered that correctly, but the reason we don't do that is because we all assume that we actually want to keep the $100 bill, and nobody talked about keeping it. Maybe the only way to actually get it is to think outside of the frames we build. So we build frames, we create labels, and we generally do this in positive ways, or at least we try to. Let me give you an example of some frames or some labels that we put on things. Here's one. Something is 99 or 90% fat-free. And that's just a really awesome, positive way to think about it. If we wrote it the other way, like this... This is 10% pure fat. We'd be less interested, perhaps, in eating it, right? So we try to frame things positively. Here's another example. There's a 90% success rate on this. But if the opposite was one out of every 10 people die attempting this, right? We might go, whoa, time out. I'm, I'm not game. I'm not going to do it. Because what we do is we frame the way we think. And we generally do it in positive ways except when it comes to people. So I think when it comes to people, what we do is we start to be tribal. We start to create this idea of us and them. People that are in and people that are out. People that are part of our tribe and people that are outsiders, foreigners. And we create these frames in which we think. And so we begin to label people like us in positive statements, and we tend to be a little bit jaded toward those that are labeled them. So, we might create divisions like these, poor people, rich people, colored people, white people, 
Christians, Muslims, Jews, atheists, Russians, Americans, Republicans, Democrats, male, female, straight, gay, and we list everybody that's not like us as those people, the opposites, someone outside of our in-group. But I think what's interesting is then we even start to make subgroups within groups. Have you ever noticed that? I think it starts in middle school. I do. You have all these middle schoolers, very much alike each other, but then all of a sudden they start forming all of these little subgroups. And that carries on into high school and maybe sometimes into college. And, and I think it really carries over into the church quite often. So here's how it carries over into the church. We have what I would call right Christians and wrong Christians. You know who I'm talking about, right? You know, right Christians and wrong Christians. I grew up being taught that there were right Christians and there were wrong Christians. I mean, there were Christians who acted a certain way, and then there were Christians who didn't, right? There were Christians who worshipped the right way, and then Christians who didn't. There were Christians who believed the right things, a certain list of things, and Christians who didn't quite believe that same list of things. And so you had right Christians, and you had wrong Christians, And generally, here's how it worked, at least in my mind, and maybe this is similar in your mind. We start with the right Christians, and we go, that's me, right? So I label myself, or we label ourselves as right Christians, and then we start to label everyone else as wrong Christians. So let me give you a couple of examples of a wrong Christian, because I think wrong Christians tend to, uh, each of us, tend to have a different picture in our mind when we think of what a wrong Christian is, right? So, here's the first example. They attend a church with female leadership, or they attend a church without female leadership. That makes them wrong Christians, right? Here's another one. They, wrong Christian is one who has too much of the Spirit in worship. I mean, some of the Spirit's good, too much of the Spirit in worship. I don't know. Might be crazy. Uh, maybe your type of wrong Christian drives a Hummer. Maybe your type of wrong Christian eats granola and sews their own clothes. Maybe your type of wrong Christian promotes reformed theology. Or someone else who's a wrong Christian lives in the burbs. Someone's in a college frat. Someone's pro-choice. Someone's pro-Israel. Someone's a pacifist. The list goes on and on of what wrong Christians are as opposed to right Christians. And so we create a list of those who are in and a list of those who are out. So with that as a context, let's turn to Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40. Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40. While you're turning there, I know some of you are already there, but while we're turning there, uh, let me give you a little background to this context. We've been looking at uh, chapter 7. We get done. Stephen was just stoned. The stoning then sends the Christians. It scatters them. They begin to live out the idea that they're to go into all the world. Right? Not just Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts. And so there's this movement to the book. And so it begins here with Stephen being stoned. The movement starts. The persecution moves people into Samaria. We hear a story in the beginning part of Acts chapter 8 of Simon, who's a magician, does, doing these crazy acts. And then along come the apostles, and they heal people, and uh, miracles are happening. And he's like, man, I want to get in on that. And so... He starts following Jesus and is excited about this movement of Christianity. And so all this is happening in the context. And then we come to this next section where I think what Luke is trying to do is to reframe a story for us. 
He's trying to change our framework a little bit. He's trying to get us to see things a little bit different. And what's interesting in the text is that he gives us all the details and he gives us the questions, but he never gives us answers. So he gives us all these details. These are information about the people. This is information about the setting. Then he gives us all these questions, but he never once gives us an answer, never once gives us information about what was taught or what was said. And I think what he's doing is he's inviting us to answer the question. So there's the question, and can we, as a community, lean into what the answers might be? And so Luke presents this. And what I'm going to do, hopefully this morning, is just to uh, walk through the passage and to allow the Spirit to keep causing us to wrestle with the text. Alright, so here's what it says at the beginning. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. So right at the beginning here, we have this clear picture of the first character. His name's Philip. He's been commanded by the angel of the Lord, or later it says by the Holy Spirit, maybe one and the same, and says, I want you to go on this path toward Gaza. What's interesting about that is Gaza was destroyed about 100 years before. So he's heading into the desert. He's heading into kind of nowhere. He's going on this path. And you're going, why? Why would he be headed that direction? But here's the thing, a little small like side note. When the Spirit tells you to do something, do it. Follow him. Walk in that path. Even if it sounds crazy, even if it doesn't make sense, follow it. So I would imagine Philip's at this point and he's going, man, I wonder why God wants me to go this way, but I'm going to go. And maybe he's wondering what he's going to see. Because so far in his journey, he sees himself preaching and God doing great things. He sees all these miracles. He's seeing people healed. He's seeing like, people raised to life. He, I mean, it just keeps going and going. All this amazing stuff happens. And I would imagine Philip's going, I wonder what's next. I mean, if God is specifically sending me here, I wonder what's next. What is this all about? And so... We go a little further and it says this. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So now here's the other main character in the text. We have Philip and now we have the Ethiopian eunuch. What's interesting is he has no name. He's just described as the Ethiopian eunuch. So here's what we know about him. Okay? These are some things we know for sure about him. First of all, he was African. It's a no-brainer right there. Okay? Second of all, he would have been seen by Philip and seen by people in the area as a foreigner, someone not from around here, not from our neck of the woods. And in antiquity, Ethiopia was actually known as the ends of the earth. Sound familiar? So we have Jerusalem, then we have Samaria, the story of Simon, and then now we have the ends of the earth. So there's this movement to the text. So first of all, we know a little bit about his background. We know a little bit about his class, too. He was powerful enough to ride in a chariot. So this guy had some, uh, some influence. He was also the, uh, an official or the, queen of, or the person in charge of all the queen's finances, so he had power. He's a person of influence. He also had this, a certain status. What I mean by that is he was wealthy. 
The reason we know he was wealthy is not only because he was in charge of those finances, but he himself was carrying a scroll of Isaiah. Now often, uh, scrolls were owned by towns or by communities. It was very expensive to have writings like that, and yet he had his own. He was reading from it, which is another thing we know that he was educated. At that time, when many people weren't able to read, he himself was reading and reading aloud. So we know a little bit about him, but we also know this about him personally. He was a eunuch. It means he was sexually incomplete or inferior. And this is important to Luke for a reason. It's important because he brings it up at least five times. He continues to describe him as such again and again and again. So that's some of the things we know about him, but then there's one thing I think that we can assume about him. So the eunuch was reading from Isaiah. He was desiring to know more about the God of the Jewish people. And he even went to Jerusalem, the text says, to worship. And he probably would have known, and this is an assumption, but he probably would have known this passage in Deuteronomy that says this. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23.1. This is also known as like the best memory verse ever right there. <laughs> so so here's, here's what happens. The reason I'm assuming he knows this, he goes to the temple. He's not allowed in. He goes to the temple to worship. He's not allowed in the assembly. There's a, there's a great chance that he was an outsider. Everyone else is worshiping at the temple and he's outside of the gates, outside of the limits, not allowed to be a part. Because see, the law strictly forbidden that a eunuch would enter the assembly of the Lord. And so due to his sexual situation, the Ethiopian eunuch most clearly stood and understood that he was an outsider. So we see this in the text. And it goes on to say this, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. So at this point, they start entering into this set of questions. Again, no answers are given. Just a set of questions. And then what happens is he's reading from a portion of Isaiah. This is the portion. It says, the passage goes where the Scripture was being read was this. It says, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. Now we don't know the whole conversation, but what we know is that he began to unpack the scriptures in a way to help this Ethiopian eunuch to understand the history of faith, to understand that this is prophetic of Jesus. Now, we reading it in our framework back here at this time, looking backwards, understand that this is prophecy, understand that it's 
describing the Messiah who is to come. Understand that it's Him being led to the cross as an opportunity to give His life for all of us. We understand that. It's part of our framework. But I wonder how the eunuch might have read it. Is this about Isaiah or is this about someone else? And I wonder in some ways if he's not asking, is this about me? Because I relate to this story. I know many times we kind of put ourselves into the Scriptures, right? We understand the story and we relate to the story. And I wonder if he feels as if the writer is telling his story. The story of another person who is powerless against the forces that were around him. Powerless as they took away his manhood. Powerless as they took away his sexual identity as they considered him from that point on odd and different and a half-man. I mean, he was useful for the courts, right? Because he could be around the queen, he could be around all the women, and there would be no impact. He wouldn't be tempted. They wouldn't have to worry about him. And yet, he was unable to live fully. He was different. He was constantly reminded of that. Couldn't have a family. His family tree was destroyed. His descendants were done. He was in humiliation. He felt injustice. All these feelings, perhaps. And so he asked the question, like, who is this about? Is it in some way about me? And Philip takes the story, we know, and helps him to understand it's about Jesus. And he, obviously, in the middle of this conversation, we don't know the whole story, but the Ethiopian eunuch goes, That's the best news I've ever heard. That's the best news I've ever heard. And then the text says this, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. And then it says that Philip continued to preach. So you have this moment where the Ethiopian asks the next and the most powerful, perhaps, question in the text where he says, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, it all depends on frames. This framework we're talking about, it all depends on that. Because one answer that Philip could have said was this, everything. Everything. Everything prevents you from being baptized. Your race prevents you from being baptized. Your religion prevents you from being baptized. And your own body prevents you from being baptized. That everything about you means you're an outsider. There's us and then there's them. There's in and then there's out. And you are out. You're not in. Likely at this point, the Ethiopian eunuch already knows what it means to be excluded He already knows what it means to be prevented from being a part of the community. He knows what it's like to stand on the outside. And he even chooses Judaism, chooses to understand this stuff about a Savior and about a Messiah, and he's continued to be kept out. There are so many rules, rules that said what things were allowed, rules that said what things were appropriate or acceptable. And so the eunuch learned early on what religious intolerance and exclusion looked like. He understood what it meant to be on the outside. 
And so he comes to this question, and I often think that the question he asks probably wasn't like, you know, Philip, I mean, here's some water. What if we just get baptized right now? Like, is, maybe it's just a matter of convenience, a matter of time. Can we do it right now before I go back home? But I don't think that's what he was asking. I mean, it could have been that. But I would imagine the man was wealthy enough, he could have decided to do whatever he wants, stay as long as he wanted, and be baptized in whatever place he wanted. But in this desert road, the little water hole off to the side that was probably muddy and dirty, he asked to get baptized. But the question may have sounded a little bit more like this. Will you too deny me God's grace by saying I'm unworthy because of my sexual status? Or will you too cut me off from inclusion in this family? I mean, we have to ask the question, will you keep me distant because of my race, because of my nationality, because of my income, because of my sexuality, because of my gender, in anything, whatever that thing is that makes me that wrong kind of Christian, will you exclude me from the family? Maybe he's asking the question that way. Maybe he's saying, I feel like there's some things preventing me from being baptized. And what's interesting is we don't get the answer. We do know that he was baptized. So I'm assuming that when Philip, when he asked that, Philip went, nothing. Nothing prevents it. It's grace. Nothing keeps you out of the family. You're accepted by Jesus and His blood. You are welcome. You are in. So, we read this and we have to ask the question, so what? So what about this story? What does it mean for us? How do we live it out? Let me give you three quick things. First one is this. I believe that the Spirit wants us moving toward the eunuchs of the world. I think He wants us moving toward those that would consider themselves on the outside. I think he wants us moving towards those who are in the class of them. There's us and then there's them. And I think the Spirit makes it very clear in this text that he's the one prompting, he's the one guiding, he's the one saying, go, come alongside of people, walk with them, be in what they are experiencing, love them in the midst of it, and invite them, share the gospel, invite them into the grace of Jesus. So I think he wants us to walk toward eunuchs. I think he wants and understands that conversion is essential. And here's what I mean by that. We read this story, and in some Bibles it says the Ethiopian eunuch is converted. Or the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. But here's kind of what I think. I think God sent Philip on the journey because it was just as much about his conversion as it was about the eunuch's conversion. I think some of us, myself included, need to be converted, have our eyes and our minds and our hearts opened to an understanding that there is no cutoff point on grace. That grace doesn't just go this far and then kind of stops. That's what makes grace scandalous. That's what makes grace seem like it's not fair. We, I, I somehow want to earn it. I somehow want to prove that I... I'm worthy of this thing I'm receiving for free. And yet grace goes, it doesn't work that way. It's free to all and it extends as far as one can imagine. And so maybe the question we have to ask ourselves as we're wrestling with this as a small group is, in what ways do I need to be converted? 
In what ways do I need my eyes opened? Just like in that first question, or the first idea of moving toward the eunuchs, maybe we're supposed to ask the question, who is God calling me to move toward? Well, in the second one, I think we have to ask the question, in what ways do I need to be converted? And then last, God tends to label things. We talked about labels at the beginning. We talked about frameworks. And God labels with grace. That's what he labels with. I mean, I kind of have this feeling that God isn't too concerned with the rules we create. Have you noticed that? He seems to come into the text over and over in the New Testament doing lots of things he shouldn't. I mean, we have a God who's all about breaking the rules. He comes in and he goes, well, I'm not supposed to talk with women. That's kind of the rule. Okay, well, I'll just go and I'll hang out with a Samaritan woman. I'm not supposed to be in Samaria. Well, that's okay. They worship differently than we do. Great. Awesome. Well, let's talk about it. Then he comes into a situation where he touches lepers and dead people. And they're like, well, you're unclean. Well, maybe not. You just healed on the Sabbath? Yep, I did. Over and over, he's breaking all the rules. Over and over, he keeps demonstrating that, listen, it's not about your rules. It's not about your frame. It's not about your structure. It's about grace. And he comes to offer it. And I think Christianity's most shocking belief is not hell. It's not judgment. It's not any other thing that we talk about. I think the the most shocking part of Christianity is the, the steadfast declaration that God's adoption of us is free to anyone. Regardless. That's shocking. I think we're, we've become so neutered to the idea of grace. We've become so like, oh yeah, that's a great Christian term. I think it's awesome. No. It should almost offend. It should almost like shock us every time we hear it again and again because it cuts through all of the lines we draw, it cuts through all of the crap we have. And it gets right to the heart of it. And says, come, grace is free. I welcome you in. And so maybe the question we have to ask ourselves is this, from whom am I withholding grace? Who is God asking me and inviting me to just stop holding on and let it go? Let grace be available to all. Don't withhold it. It's not yours to withhold. Let me leave you with this quote as we enter into communion. Mike Iaconelli says this, The grace of God is dangerous. It's lavish, excessive, outrageous, and scandalous. God's grace is ridiculously inclusive. Apparently, God doesn't care who He loves. He's not very careful about the people he calls his friends or the people he calls his church. We're going to take communion over these next few moments. And as you come to the table, as you partake, just remember it is his body broken and it's his blood shed as an invitation to all. Regardless of where we find ourselves, regardless of how we feel, regardless of whether we feel like we're in or out, that we're all welcomed in. It's a free invitation. And if in any way you've not ever accepted that gift, I would encourage you to talk to someone about that.
ask the questions, just like the eunuch did, and find freedom in grace. Let's pray.